Profiles in Havoc is a Havoc Journal podcast. Havoc Journal seeks to serve as the voice of the veteran community through a focus on current affairs and articles of interest to the public in general and the veteran community in particular. Havoc Journal strives to offer timely, current, and informative content. Surf the pages of Havoc Journal. Read the most articulate, opinionated, thoughtful, and provocative veteran writers writing about the nation, the world, politics, national security, culture, fitness, movies, TV, list goes on and on and on. Havoc Journal is always expanding, always striving to improve the reader's experience. So do yourself a favor and check out the very latest at HavocJournal.com. That's Havoc with a K, Journal.com. Havoc Journal, all one word, dot com. HavocJournal.com. The Second Mission Foundation is a nonprofit organization that exists to educate, elevate, and advocate for members of America's service community in order to help them find their second mission after government service. Second Mission Foundation was started by and for the members of America's service community. That means members of the armed forces, first responders, security contractors, etc. Second Mission Foundation provides these veterans the opportunity for them to tell their stories, reach their goals, and make their voices heard through educational outreach, entrepreneurship support, community involvement, and of course, the publication of their work. Like The Hill, a memoir of war in Helmand Province by Aaron Kirk. The Hill is an account of the tragedy of war, the deeply personal experience of combat, and the raw, unfiltered brutality of lower enlisted Marine Corps life. This book follows Aaron Kirk's odyssey from civilian to Marine and back again, focusing on his time as an infantry squad leader in Garmsir Helmand Province during the height of the Afghanistan troop surge. To find out more about the book, as well as all the other things that Second Mission Foundation has going on, go to secondmissionfoundation.org. That's Second Mission Foundation, all one word, dot org, secondmissionfoundation.org. And I thank Second Mission for being a sponsor of this episode. My guest today was um, one of my favorite people to talk to about themselves, uh, Neville Johnson. Nev has lived one hell of a life, the kind of life that you, you know, need a John Huston movie or three to be made about, um, you know, a life of high adventure, uh, South African by birth, raised there, the son of a South African police officer who left to start his own life in England. And that resulted in him ultimately joining the British military, deploying to Northern Ireland, Iraq, Afghanistan, and then eventually becoming a private security contractor in Iraq. It has been a long and circuitous route of this adventurous, wanderlust-filled life uh, for Nev. And he is incredibly interesting to talk to. We even ran out of runway talking today. Uh, I, I just felt guilty taking up so much of his time, and I could have this episode easily could have been twice as long. Uh, with the amount of content in his life. Uh, and you know what it is? It's not just the amount of adventures he's had. It's also his unpacking of them and um, his ability to remember and articulate really quiet, nuanced moments that probably a lot of us can relate to, but not all of us always remember right off the bat and kind of hearing him talk about some of those um, pivotal moments that are often quiet and often go unnoticed um, by so many of us 
is, is interesting to me. And I, I, it meant a lot that he uh, was able to walk down memory lane with me today and talk about all that. So I can't wait for you guys to hear this. Uh, it's, you know, I'll also just preface by saying I am, I've always had a particular fascination with the South Africa of the 80s and 90s. Uh, that apartheid era South Africa that transitioned to the post-apartheid era South Africa was incredibly pivotal pivotal in um, the Cold War and geopolitics in general. Uh, the way that the birth of the private military companies that came out of South Africa with the fall of apartheid is, is a really important part of military history and one that doesn't get a ton of coverage so much anymore. There was kind of a, a lot of coverage about it early on in the Iraq war. And then a lot of that literature uh, seems to kind of have stopped. Um, and Nev has certainly seen that at both ends of the spectrum. He saw it as a kid growing up and as uh, somebody who's coming of age in post-apartheid South Africa, and then becoming a private military contractor himself at the end of his life. So um, we spent an awful lot of time talking about South Africa and the dynamic there and the experience of apartheid and uh, what happens after and how that impacted uh, Afrikaans speakers like himself, which I think is just super interesting and relevant and pertinent to today. So can't wait for you guys to hear all of this. It's experiences you will not hear from very many folks. And as he says, there's a reticence on the part of a lot of South Africans to talk about those experiences and the fact that Nev was gracious enough to open up and allow me to pry and, and, and ask these questions um, was I'm grateful that he did uh, because I don't know many other people I could ask them of. So um, sit back and enjoy. I, I just am so excited for this to air and for you guys to hear from him. I'm Christopher Paul Meyer. And this is Neville Johnson's Profile in Havoc. What's up, man? Good morning. Oh, it's good, good to see you, dude. Good morning. Are you at home right now? I'm seeing this really. Okay, that's not a... I mean, you know, people are doing the... Uh, that screen that zoom screen like the 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 digital zoom screen behind them so now i keep getting fooled like the other day i was talking to somebody and they had a brick wall behind them and i was like dude that's awesome what kind of freaking office do you have like it's a zoom screen dude i'm like yeah i'm an idiot but that's actually your home there you're in right this now. this is yeah this is my home yeah it's all real so it's i think the curtains it's curtains behind me and if i open the curtains you can see it's all black oh so it's all this all outside not it's because all. of the rugby team okay but no. it's all black. It's all black, just the same. Gotcha. And the all black snap. <laughs> and this is this is not a Zoom screen behind me. You are actually seeing a crappy hotel room um, that I'm still stuck in. So in case that ever crossed your mind, um, dude, I'm so excited for this. So I was um, I was tempted to actually cancel and reschedule for later because since we're renovating our house and I'm stuck in this hotel, all my books are in storage. And I was like, oh my God, I'm doing such a disservice to the me of 15 years ago that was reading up on South Africa and private military companies in South Africa and all that stuff. And I was like, God, I, I really want to dive into those to, to be fully prepped. But then I was like, nah, I, it's all right. If there's stuff that I brain fart on, we'll do another one or something. But uh, there's too much good stuff to dive into. Sure. So um, 
let's start with this. Growing up in South Africa. Yeah. What do you remember? I want to talk about your personal point of view, because I think it's something that First off, for, for those that are wondering why I'm even fascinated by this, I think a lot of people that haven't looked into South Africa or even Southern Africa in the 80s and 90s are missing an awful lot of subjects of geopolitical and military importance and things that we can learn from now, um, but also just that are wild stories um, from back then. So to actually be growing up in South Africa in that time with a father who was in the police force. It seems like you had a front seat as a witness to a lot of history that I think a lot of people would be interested in then seeing how your life played out from that and the choices you made militarily, professionally, and all that. It's it's a fascinating career path that I think a lot of people could relate to and learn from. But growing up for you, what was the norm? What Looking back now, do you look and go, I'm so different than I was growing up? Or do you go, nope, I learned a lot of values that I'm holding on to now. And what was normal to me then is what I is what should be normal to me now. Good question. Um, growing up in South Africa, it was a, a very unique environment to be to be growing up in. I mean, I had a, a great um, upbringing, you know, um, family values that was, you know, taught to me that I've learned from my folks. It, um, it was a very unique environment to be part of. Um, you know, as you as you grow up in an environment, you think it's normal, but then looking back to uh, what was going on at the time, you would think to yourself, "Well, hang on, that's not really normal." Right, right. You know, growing up in the apartheid era of South Africa, and then having a a, a dad that's in the that served in the South African police force, you know, that's another unique part of being part of South Africa, and and. Um, yeah, looking back now, it's yeah, it was a unique time to be alive in. For sure. What do you what do you remember most about that time? And let me let me by comparison, let me tell you what I remember about my childhood. Um, it just as a as a frame of reference. So growing up in New York City of the 1980s, um, late 70s and 80s, uh, I remember the crime. I remember um, it taught me risk management at a very early age. It taught me um, situational awareness at a very early age. Uh, I was mugged right outside of my apartment building. Uh, they stole my skateboard, um, you know, all that. And and then I remember they kind of looked at me and I looked at them after they took my skateboard. And I was like, well, what now? And I was like, am I like obligated to run away? And they just started walking away. And I was like, well, I guess I'll follow you because I, I don't, what, what am I supposed to do? I don't know what comes next after I'm mugged. <laughs> you know, it's one of those yeah. weird situations. Yeah. But, but as a result, um, and that was kind of one of the more comical moments, but there was a lot of stuff. Uh, I remember seeing a police officer um, on his knees begging for his life when a homeless guy uh, took his gun and was uh, had him at gunpoint um, outside the bank. I remember, you know, the fights where, Somebody had a chain and, and I'd watch outside my window and watch a bunch of dudes stomp a guy. So I just became very aware of threats that were all around and that life was incredibly dangerous. And that kind of conditioned me for probably a lot of stuff down the road. Hmm. What was your life like? What was the what was the residing emotional memories, emotional intelligence that you took away from your childhood? Yeah, I would say it's the family values. Me growing up in an environment where it's it's been it was ingrained into you. I mean, I remember my dad 
used to do a kit check on me before I go to school to make sure, you know, huh. I'm, I, I look the part and I'm well presented. You know, my shoes are clean. He taught me how to um, brush and clean my shoes. He, he's the one that taught me how to uh, do a tie. Not to clip on ties, yeah, but the yeah, ties yeah. that you, know, you, you put it on your neck and fold and do that. And so he taught me that. And uh, just the, the good, solid family values, you know, uh, hardworking family. My mom worked. My dad worked. Um, and it's the those family values that, that that was ingrained into us as kids growing up. Myself and my my younger sister, she's five years younger than me, and um, that I will always cherish. And I remember that. I remember it was an environment where you were expected to to play sports. You know, it's you were expected to, to play rugby. You know, it's, it's a, um, it's almost like as soon as you were born, you were given a rugby ball and said, "There you go." Yeah, that you're expected to go and play that sport. You're expected to to um, adhere to the rules and regulations and the way of life. Um, yeah. How many generations had your family been in South Africa? Were they original? I'm assuming they were Boers originally, right? They were part of that. The the Dutch that originally come there, right? Or am I just making I, that up? I would think so. Um, I mean, obviously, um, it, it goes way back way youth. You've got the Dutch and immigrants way back that immigrated from Europe all the way to South Africa. But I never looked into it. I never looked into the hmm. the, the, the history of um, my family. Um, I know that obviously my my grandfather, he served during the Second World War. And obviously they were born there, but I never bothered to look into it. Hmm. Um, I should now <laughs> because I'm now living in New Zealand of all places and, I, and I've never bothered to do that. Yeah. And I know it's um, yeah, it's something that I need to to look into, but I've never really sort of bothered to look into the the, um, the history of it. But yeah, I mean, I was born there. My dad was he was born there. My grandfather was born there. Yeah, um, got gotcha. you. Know, from South Africa. Um, who, who did you understand to be enemies when you were growing up? Um, I, I feel like you know the people that you hear about at the kitchen table early on are ones that. Sometimes you don't hold on to the rest of your life, but it's once that you're like, okay, that's the threats, that's the that's the bad guys, and everything when you're a kid is a binary, you know, it's good and evil. So, who, who were enemies to you growing up? Who who was in your mind as somebody to watch out for? Or, hey, this is where we stand. Yeah, I remember growing up in South Africa. You know, we were always taught to you know, stick with your own kind. You know, it, mm-hmm. it wasn't so much as in what they told us that we were. It was ingrained. Into as, as young kids, and then growing up, you would think it's normal. You would think it's okay to be a part, to have your own group, your own kind. And as you grow up, you think it's normal. And then looking back, you think, no, that's not really normal. You know, you need to be, um, it, it needs to be equal. Right. And then growing, growing up in an environment where you are told or shown, this is where you should be. This is where you should go to school. Don't go to that school. You know, don't really socialize with those people over there. And then as you grow up, you would think it's normal. You would think it's okay to be um, apart from from that group. Um, but then at the same time, growing up in, in the late 70s, early 80s and 90s, you know, um, the border war, the South African border war, that was going on. So we grew up in this environment knowing uh, that it's, it's going on um, somewhere across the border. Um, uh, more so myself because my dad he deployed with the South African police force. Um, so that was stuck in the back of my mind as a kid growing up. So you would, I would see him right. 
for a while and then it would disappear. And then it would just, my mom and I, she would then raise me, she would look after me. Um, she would then teach me the good family values. Um, yeah, like I said, it's a very unique environment to be, uh, to be growing up in. What, what was the, maybe explain some of the, my understanding is the border wars hold almost a semi-legendary status in the South African mindset that that was so influential. And there, I understand there's even like a, a, a type of literature sprung up about the border wars just based on that, that it was that it really had a major cultural impact. What what do the border wars mean to you now when you think of them? Uh where do they stand in your mind? Are they kind of like, you know, the World War II of your youth? It's like, oh yeah, this was what was going on. This was the conflict of our times. Or is it or do you see it as part of the Cold War? Uh, how how do you how do you place that? I would say it's it's a massive part of this African history, a massive part of uh, when I grew up, because my dad, he, he took part in the, in the South African border war, because at the time when they went took place, because I think it started in 1966, it was in August, and it lasted all the way up until 1989. And um, so, so they, they sent across, it was the South African Defence Force and South African Police, because it was in Namibia, which was the uh, West African uh, part and also in Zambia and Angola, where it took place. And yeah, so it's, it's a massive part because there were so many young South Africans that were um, drafted in to go across, you know, to join up. Because back then, it, it was still, you know. There was still was a draft. Oh, wow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. still conscript. Wow. Um, you start to go and join the, uh, the South African Army. But for me, I always knew and always wanted to go and join the South African Police Force. For me, it was, that was my calling. Because my dad was in the South African Police Force, so for me it was a natural step to to follow. Right. What was the difference um, between the police and the military? The way that in in the border wars, um, what were their? Do you know what their roles were? Do you know how that differed in their assignments and their responsibilities? Um, with the police, um, because of their experience in policing and um, gathering intelligence, they would then use that. To, to gather intelligence and to use police tactics to um, gather intelligence to go across the border into Angola and those places with the conventional military units. They were tasked to basically um, eliminate any any threat because I think with Africa at the time, during those during 1966, they were afraid because of the involvement of Cuba and China because they were supporting or assisting uh, those units, they were afraid that it might stream down south and into South Africa. That's why I think they then rolled in and then tried to prevent that from happening and coming across into South Africa. So it was sort of counterinsurgency that they were yeah. doing. And so when yeah. the police were involved, they were almost like the counterinsurgent you know, task force, yeah. essentially, using yeah. that skill set, right? Um, yeah. Just for everybody listening, can you walk through the origins of the border war? to the extent that you know them and not to put you on the spot and, you know, make you become Mr. PBS historian here. But, uh, you know, what do you recall as the origins, uh, the origin story of those wars? Um, well, I know it, it's, it started in 1966. You know, it was where you, you, you had the um, People's Liberation Army of Namibia, which was an, uh, and then an armed wing of uh, SWAPU, which was your South African your Southwest African People's Organization. 
And it was in August where it was um, a police unit, the South African police unit, that bumped into them and then they got attacked. And that's the origin, how it started. And and at that time, what we now know is Namibia was part of South Africa, right? So the, the South African police, isn't that right? Or was that? Is that not officially. Not okay. officially. So they kind of just took over and it wasn't officially, but yeah, Namibia back then, yeah, um, it was part of South Africa, but not officially for that one. So they had people, gotcha. their units there and police officers there, but then it was called, yeah, Southwest Africa. And yeah, that's how it started. Why, why, was, why were the people living in what we now know as Namibia, um, why did they not want to join South Africa? Was it because of apartheid? Was, did it have anything to do with apartheid? Was it just about their own independence? Regardless, what was, this, what was the, their motivation? It could have been uh, part of, and you know, South Africa was part of, you know, obviously it was apartheid. I think that was the, the reason. I mean, uh, honestly, I don't know the actual sort of reason why they wanted to be independent. Um, How did that, um, did they make incursions into South Africa as well? So it wasn't just South Africans going across the border, but it was also uh, Namibians coming across the border into South Africa? Um, I know it was um, they, they tasked this defense force and police officers in South Africa to go and assist, and also I mean they had uh, units in Namibia then that helped, especially with their police force, police units to go further from there also into Angola and uh, I think it was Zambia to go and assist and to drive the uh, the forces out purely because they were afraid that. Uh, it might get into uh, um, South Africa because yeah, the assistance of uh, China and Cuba yeah, as well, yeah. and um, yeah, so that sparked um, fears within the South African government at the time. And I think a lot of people, we may, we might need to sidebar and kind of explain that because a lot of people might be a little gobsmacked to know that Cuba had such a strong presence in Angola. Um, do you know how Cuba got there? Do you know why they got into Angola and what their motivation was to even be there? I think it's it's pretty because what was going on at the time they um I think they assisted with weapons and I think possibly troops as well. Um and thinking that uh, they want to assist and help uh, provide arms against the um apartheid South Africa. Mm-hmm. How um, how aware were you of any of this growing up? Was this taught? Was it in schools? Yeah. Was it something your dad would even talk about? Would he come back and uh, what was his OPSEC like? Would, did he, would he tell you, hey, I'm going out and I'm going to go here or I'm going to do this? No, no, I was a young kid. You know? Um, I know that he, he, he went somewhere and then he would come back and then he's all different, he's all skinny. He's, 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 uh, he's blonde hair, he's bleached white, you know, he's got a nice, good, solid tan. And, um, but as I got older, I got more, uh, I was made aware of what was going on across the border. Because we had, and I remember I was in high school and they had this big monument outside the school uh, with all these plaques, all these names of these young kids that left school at the age of, I think, 18. They joined South Defense Force, done their training, went across. And over the years, you had various operations that took part in Southern Africa. And then they, they got killed in action. And they named because they were from that particular school that I that I went to. I saw that, and for me, it was a it was a uh, it was something personal. 
no, I couldn't understand why it is that they weren't there and they died so young. So it, it wasn't really taught in schools. It was going on at the time as, as I grew up. And for me, it was a big thing because I saw the names and I saw the young ages and I knew that it was going to be my time soon. But I knew I was going to go and join the police force, not the army. And that was the area I want to go in and just to, to go and see action and then follow the footsteps of, of the police units and my dad. How did your dad, did you ever tell your dad that that's what you intended to do? And how did he feel about that? I think he knew. I think he knew. I think he knew that was ultimately, I mean, I even told him, you know, I mean, I told him I'm going to join the police force. That's my calling. Because um, I was still in high school when the papers came through from, from the government. They called all the boys in the, in the school together in the, in the school hall. And they said, okay, cool. Here's your papers. You know, they call the names, nominal roll call. Here's your documents. But I knew that, no, I'm not going to go to the army. I'm going to go to the police. So he had two choices. You did have choices. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Either the police or the army. Or, or prison if he refused to go. Um, <laughs> and... Um, and I knew, okay, that was the calling. I'm going to go. That's what I want. It, it just felt like a natural progression for me to get yeah. here. That, and I wanted to. Was the draft only for white South Africans or were black South Africans drafted also? Mm, I think black as well. I mean, I'm not entirely sure, but I'm pretty sure it was, yeah, all South Africans, all, all South African men. So were there were the units segregated under apartheid? So you had all black units and all white units? Uh, yeah, I think so. Yeah, within South Africa growing up, yeah, there was a um, an area for the whites, area for the for the blacks, you know, like the old pictures if you Google yeah. it, you'll see the, the old uh, signs that says if you go to the toilets, you know, whites only or Europeans only. I don't know why they, they mentioned Europeans. Yeah, <laughs> Europeans and then you know blacks. Everything was again growing up in an environment, you you think it's normal, you know, it's yeah. it was installed, you, know, you go over here, sit you because of your your skin color, because of your race. You go to the school and all the blacks you go to the school you live in this area and then growing up you, you didn't know any, any better you know it's in store sure. you know and, and some kids were, were even told you stay away from the black kids they are the enemy don't go and talk with them don't go and mix with them you know so as you and then you install that you know as a young kid growing up all you want to do is just go and play with another boy just you know you want a friend um but then yeah some were actually told you're growing up in this environment of you don't mix with them because of your skin color. You know? um, yeah, it's, it's 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 very difficult to explain. You know, no, it's, it's, it, it, I mean, I think you're explaining it very well. It's just it seems like a very difficult situation. Um, you know, it's that kind of mesmeric state where you, if you're brought into that, then that's all you know. Yeah. To, to break that habit is, I mean, it, it takes an awful lot uh, to smash that mentality. Mm. Looking back on it now. Um, I can't imagine trying to put myself in your shoes. If I have a father that I love and respect who does work that I want to emulate and then seeing how much harm apartheid did, not just inside South Africa, but geopolitically, how do you reconcile that personally? Um, Just to go, Hey, you know, he was supporting a government that certainly was against communism and was good in that respect but was, you know, enforcing apartheid, which was seemed to bring an awful lot of problems on South Africa, both internally and externally. How do you reconcile the politics with the man and with the job? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, it's, it's something that will always be part of me. 
Um, and then looking back, it's, it's, I think it's one of those taboo subjects that a lot of people don't want to talk about or discuss yeah. or yeah. go into. Um, a lot of um, veterans, my dad's age, people that served alongside with him, you know, they, they're proud of what they've achieved, what they've done for the government, for themselves, because as, as they went across. Um, they've lost a lot of friends, a lot of mates, and it's, it's a big part of history. And, yeah. uh, and then a lot of it that occurred, people won't be proud of, but then a lot people they are proud of, and it's yeah, it's 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 something that will always be there. It will, it will always be a, a conversation that a lot of people will tend to avoid, purely because of what occurred on both sides. Of course, yeah. of course. I'm not saying that one side is is what I would say. Both sides um, have done things that 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 should never have happened. Yeah. And that's, I think, what's so interesting, uh, and and it's my privilege standing so far away from South Africa to say it's interesting. I think to live through it is is incredibly difficult for everyone involved. Um, but I think one of the things that's so valuable to examine about that period for everyone, um, especially folks that don't know much about it, is that two things can be true at once. Because certainly in the wake of the end of apartheid. You know, hopes were through the roof, certainly internationally, that, boy, this this is going to be amazing for South Africa. And yet South Africa then just plunged into, I actually yeah. looked up some of the statistics, but I think in 2015, yeah, in 2015, there was a poll. Um, oh, sorry. In 2002, it was a, there was a, a poll, uh, 60% of South Africans said life had been better under apartheid. Because that's how bad things had gotten by 2002. Uh, the life expectancy in South Africa was 64 during apartheid. It dropped to 56, which was the same as Somalia after Ooh. apartheid. Um, and they had 132.4 rapes per 100,000 people per year, which was by far the highest in the world. Botswana was the next with 93. Um, so it's things like that that where where, uh, and I think that's what is so tricky to understand and to, to wrap our heads around. Yeah. Um, but that's also why it's, it's so important to understand and to, and to hear about. And I get why that's so difficult to talk about because that is a, um, it's a complicated problem set and it requires a lot of adult conversations, which is yeah. something you don't always get nowadays. Let me ask you a different um, about a different subject. Was there, what was the feeling among you, among white South Africans about the British? Um, and I'm basing this question completely on the movie Zulu, <laughs> where it was just where my understanding of like that that tension that was there between the Boers and the British and and the history of that um, was that still a thing? Was was there any tension? Was there any resentment? Or what? How did you regard the the Europeans? Europeans, I would say in, in South Africa, it was definitely um, it's definitely history between the two. And I remember growing up in South Africa, we always had these young, uh, as, as a young kid, these, these jokes between you know, the, the Brits and the Afrikaans-speaking Boers, you know, um, that they're the enemy, you know, that they they came over here and they invaded the country and yet the, the you know, the Boer War in Transvaal. Um, yeah, so growing up, yeah, it was, it was yeah, I think, part of the culture where you were made aware of the Brits and the British coming across. Um 
But for me personally, it was just part of life. It was part of history. I had no resentment. I had no um, uh, no issue with that. I mean, uh, the ironic thing is I left the country in 2000 and then I went over to the UK and I joined the British Army. Right. Well, that's uh, why I was asking. Know? Yeah. I, yeah, I was so, wondering like, if there's any conflict in your mind about, oh, now uh, I'm with the British. No, yeah. You know, you move on. Um, but yeah, I remember growing up, it was, yeah, um, if you, there was there was this this thing, you know, you get many, many times in, in army units, you've got uh, the one unit that will fight against another unit. But when they deploy uh, on operations, they can work together. You know, same thing with in South Africa. You, you, you had the, the white Afrikaans speaking. And the, and the English speaking, and there was a uh, it was this this thing between the two. You know, it's like oh, there goes the uh, English speaking white kid, and, and, he, and he can't talk Afrikaans. You know, and you nail them, and there was this thing between between the groups. You know, um, but then when they obviously deployed on operations in in South Africa um, on the border war, they could work together. They can um, do things together. How many how many foreigners um, from outside of South Africa were you exposed to? I know we talked about this before that a lot of people all across Africa would come down into South Africa um, for economic reasons, usually. But how many other folks from? Did you have folks from the Middle East, from Russia, from Europe, from the Far East? Did you were, were you used to seeing people? Because that's my impression is that people from all over the world seem to go to. Johannesburg, go to Cape Town, go to South Africa in general, and 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 many of them try to start lives there. Is that um, was that your experience, or was that not the case then? For me, growing up, yeah, I was exposed to a lot of other African um, nationals within, you know, migrant mm-hmm. travel from, you know, other um, Kenya, um, Nigeria, Egypt, purely because of the um, economy, of the work for the families. And then you had various other British nationals that uh, you know immigrated across and were exposed to that. But growing up as a kid, you would you would see um, this environment of you different faces and different colours, but um, not that big ex- ex- exposure to other nationals, say from from Germany. They were there, but growing up as a as a kid, and it wasn't a big thing. Got you. But, Got but they you. were there, you know, they were there, but not that many, not that many, predominantly from other African states coming across just for a better way of life. So I remember in 1994, um, I was working a summer job on wall street when the ticker tape parade was thrown for Nelson Mandela. And I remember Mm -hmm. leaning out the window from whatever was 16, 20 stories up and watching the ticker tape parade and everybody was cheering. And, um, it was, um, it was the first time I'd ever actually seen a ticker tape parade in my life. Um, how did you feel? How was it? What was that moment like there in South Africa? Um, I would say mixed emotions. I was, um, it was, it felt different. It felt different. Um, it was, you could feel the atmosphere um, changed, you know, a lot within South Africa. The, the, the feeling, um, some resentment, some fear, some excitement, um, mixed emotions from, um, from people, you know, growing up, born in that environment. Yeah. All of a sudden, we were told, "No, apartheid is it's going to end." You think apartheid? What's apartheid? You know? Yeah. And, uh, I'm just I'm growing yeah. up, and so this is this is my normal. This is home for me. But then, 
knowing it's going to change. I remember a lot of folks back then started to immigrate, thinking it's going to fall. So if it's going to die, it's going to fall because apartheid is going to end. And they're going to be the target of, of, of hate, of crime. So you've had a lot of people back then in 94 onwards that's left, you know, gone over to the States, gone over to um, the UK, Australia, New Zealand. Um, for me, it was, okay, cool. This, this big thing is happening. Um, I was watching TV um, thinking, oh, okay, things is, is going to change uh, for the better. Uh, I hope so. Um, so we can all, you know, get on with our lives. Sure. Um, but yeah, it was a, it was a, I think, cause I remember with the 95 World Cup, Rugby World Cup, I was, I think I was 18 at the time, you know, and um, it was a very unique time. And we, we, we won the, well, the Springboks won the, the Rugby World Cup. And it felt like at that time, at that day, the whole country, we, uh, we came together, you know, yeah. regardless of skin color, regardless of your religion, because growing up in South Africa, rugby is, is part of the culture, you know, same thing as with, you know, the All Blacks in New Zealand, you know, they love rugby. Um, it's, it's just their thing. They great yeah. at the sport. So for, for us at that time, we came to, together, you know, Nelson Mandela, he was up there, he was president, he was wearing the, the Springbok jersey, um, went up on the field and he greeted all the players and he greeted Franco Pinar, which was the, the captain. He was the captain at, at the time. It was a unique time. It, it was it was amazing, you know, but I think from that time onwards, the country then slowly took a nosedive, you know, from, what- from that time on. Yeah. What did you notice in those first early years? What changes did you actually see on the ground? I mean, internationally, everybody kind of like any international community does when you're looking at a particular country, you look, go, oh, wow, look at that. And then you forget all about it and you assume everything's done. But what was it actually like on the ground? Did you notice changes and what were those? Um, yeah, I noticed the changes more on the South African police. Because my dad served, it was they were still serving in the South African police force, and I noticed that a lot of the members on the uniforms, so uh, they've um, they had their, their surname and then the old South African flag, like a um, like a badge on their chest, and they taped the old South African flag up because it represented apartheid. So they were told because South Africa was then uh, slowly getting through the change of changing a lot. The, 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 the South African flag, street names changed um, the name of airports because a lot of it, they believed, represented the old South Africa, uh, South African government, the um, apartheid. Um, airport names, street names, building names. And then for me growing up, I noticed that because a lot of my dad's friends would then visit the house or I would see them at my dad's work. And I noticed that they've, they've, they've taken the little tape to put over the South African flag and then they would wait until they get the new, um, you know, badges back with the name and the new, the new South African flag, you know. Because I remember where they had a competition in South Africa for the, for the young kids on South Africa to, to design their own flag, the new South African flag, and then you would then, it, it gave the opportunity for the young kids at that stage to be part of this new, unique um, experience or unique part of history. Um, and I, I remember that, the fact that they taped that over. And then it was mm-hmm. the change within the police force. A lot of um, high-ranking officers 
were then leaving, um, leaving the police force, uh, leaving the um, South African Defence Force, the, your high-ranking officers, a lot of them were then either, I think I was told, were, um, were then told to, to move out, make way for, you know, uh, equal opportunity for other um, people to come up the ranks to fill up that position, you know, and, and there was a slowly, a slow change within the government sector where they, I think they wanted to give opportunity for, for someone else, uh, regardless if, if you had experience or not. Yeah. Did you notice, um, or, or did your dad ever communicate how this was affecting him and what this meant for him? No, not, not much. I, I don't remember him uh, talking much about the, the, uh, the change at the time. I mean, I could see it uh, within him, within his, his demeanor, within uh, the house. But for me, it was just, um, it was part of life. Okay, it's, it's, it's happening, but I'm, I'm gonna, I'm just gonna, gonna crack on. You know, I've, I've, I've got a job to go to. I, um, I can't let this um, affect me that much. But it was a gradual change, but you could see it within the people. Within, um, they were very quick to want to change. I like, I remember I was in high school and they wanted to change the name of the South African rugby team, the Springboks. They wanted to change that, especially the Indian, I think it's, it was an old uh, Springbok. Uh, animal. They wanted to, to change that as well. And I was in, the, in my Afrikaans um, class and um, we were told to, to write an essay on, on any subject. And I remember where I, I wrote my, my essay was on why I thought it was wrong to change the, um, the whole rugby team's outfits, you know, to change the, the, the color green to different color or to take away the, the spring mark. Because I grew up with, with that, you know, um, and for me it was a big thing um, to, to be able to play for South Africa, to represent South Africa, to be a spring mark player. And for me, it affected me a lot to the point where uh, I wrote a big essay why it was wrong to, to want to change that, you know. And they didn't change it, did they? Because I remember the Springbok uniform still having the Springbok on it, right? Yeah, well, it did change somewhat where the Springbok, uh, the actual animal, uh, got smaller and the uh, Protea, which is with the, the national flower, got bigger and it changed from, I think, went from the left side over to the right side. Uh, some of it changed, but it was still there. And it was also, I think, I don't know if, it's, if it really happened, but in the movie... Um, about South Africa and Nelson Mandela and Fontapino, um, where it was Nelson Mandela that, that, that said to his new government at the time to not change the, uh, the name, to keep it the Springboks, to keep it the same color and so forth. I don't know if it really happened or really occurred, but it was a movie that, um, that came out some years back about what occurred during the 95 war. Oh, I remember the it's a Clint Eastwood movie with Matt Damon. Right? Yeah, yeah, that yeah, one. That's yeah, one. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's yeah. One, yeah. yeah, I didn't see that, but I remember when that came out. Right. Um, how did? What about for you personally? Did you, suddenly you have black friends? I mean, did you did like did you notice like just interpersonally that things had changed? Did you walk down the street differently? Or <clears throat> do you just see people on the street that normally you didn't see there or hadn't seen there in the past? Like. What was that like? What was the dynamic like? Not really. I mean, um, during the 94, it was 94, 95. 
94, when they had the elections, you know, you would, it was the atmosphere because people could then go and vote, vote the government that they wanted. Um, that was what I noticed. We are, I always spoke to um, to Black, Asian, Indian people. You know, it wasn't a big issue. You know, for me, um, I didn't really see, are they Black? You can't talk to them, you know, because uh, when I left school, I worked in an environment where they were, it was a mixed color. You know, you grew up in South Africa, it's all mixed. You know, you, you walk in the street, there's a mixture of uh, there's black, there's white, there's, um, there's Asian, there's Indian, there's um, immigrants from Germany, there's British nationals, you know, they're there. And, uh, and I remember in the gym that I worked, there were um, a, a mixture of, uh, it was a, a, a vibrant culture. You know, some of the clients, people I trained, people I, I spoke to, they were black. You know, for me, it wasn't a, a a new change, but it was a change in the atmosphere where I think it gave the opportunity for a lot of people that um, they couldn't do much than they could do. They could get out there, they could vote, they could go and buy a house, they could go and live in an area that they wanted to. Um, that's the change that I've noticed, not mm. so much. And because uh, if you've walked down the street, yes, you can see black, you can see Indian, you can see what you can you can bump into, into the people that's that's. Um, they speak Afrikaans or they speak um, Zulu or, or Twana or Benda because in, in South Africa, you've got 11 official languages. Um, had you known atmosphere. Yeah. Had you known any languages besides Afrikaans and English prior? Uh, were you aware of, did you know any of them prior to the end of apartheid? Yeah. Growing up in South Africa, depending which region you grew up in, you would then learn that tribal language. Oh, so you were up. Okay. Yeah. So growing up, wow. it was in just on the outskirts of Johannesburg. I grew up in Pretoburg. And um, so I went to an a, a Afrikaans high school. And then you would then, the first language is Afrikaans. And you've got English. And then your third tribal language. For me, it was Northern Sutu. And then when my family moved to um, Durban, which is back then it was known as uh, Natal. Then obviously the tribal language there is Zulu, but um, it's it's like anything else. If you don't do it on a regular basis, it's going to fall away. I mean, sure. I, I still know the basics to, to say, you know, to, to greet, but if you don't do it often enough, you know, it's going to fall away. During apartheid, how often did you get to speak those tribal languages? Was it really only in school, or did you ever have a chance just to try it out and actually talk to people? Um, not much, really. No, unless yeah. you unless you actually. You've left school and, and work in an area where it was um, it was needed. Like for, for example, in in the mines, or um, when deployed with um, some of the black officers or black soldiers or police officers, then mm -hmm. it would be beneficial. Or mm -hmm. if you worked on a on a farm, uh, and I remember, uh, I was really impressed with um, a lot of white farmers. They could speak a, a, a tribal language, you know, fluently. You know, um, because a lot of their, their workforce that worked for them, you know, they were sure. Zulu or Twana or Kosa, um, um, so it would be beneficial for, for them to, to speak the language. You know? um, if apartheid had never ended and the government hadn't changed, would you have stayed in South Africa just because? It would have been continuance. It would have been like, yeah, there's no change, and I can follow and follow into the police force. 
or would or was that because the government had changed and the country was going into a lot of economic issues and a lot of crime issues was it just a different country and and too different and it made it easier to leave um the plan for me or my goal my dream it, it was always to go to the police force for me it was a natural progression to leave school and go into this African police force because i like the the idea of of being in a unit where uh, if it was, you know, the values, the job, assisting and, and, and helping and seeing my dad in uniform. And he taught him and, and my mom, because my mom was a, was a nurse. So I grew up in, in, a, in a family, everyone was a uniform. You know, my uncle was a firefighter. Um, my, my grandfather, he was a, a pilot during the Second World War. So for me, it was a natural progression yeah. going to the police force. Yeah. It didn't work out the way. And then I'd done some other stuff. And then I just felt I needed to just to move and go. I never left purely because of it being a different country. The uh, things changed. I just felt like I just needed to escape and go and explore and see the world. Um, I felt like this this big fish in this in a small pond, even though I was this insecure um kid that had no self-confidence that was in his big country and i just needed just to get out of that environment and and go and, and travel and i had no plan b hey i just knew i wanted to to leave the country and and go ex- explore and um various you were into, other doors open across the way and you were into bodybuilding and and you you thought right yeah let me go yeah, let me go yeah, to the uk yeah. or the u.s and the U.S. was tougher, if I remember the story right. Correct me if I got this Correct. wrong. But the U.S. Correct. was tougher to emigrate to, and so you went up to the U.K. and you started working. And then just tell people how you ended up joining the British military. During that, during that time, I uh, I had a student visa. I was I was there on. Well, I first arrived in the U.K. on a two-year holiday working visa, which means you legally can't work full time. You have to work say as a barman, a couple of hours a year and then you travel and you do something else. You can't, you know, legally not allowed. And I was, I learned rather quickly that they, they're not going to be able to, to track me down and say, hey, Mr. Johnson, you know, you know you've been working full time. We're going to boot you out. You know, I thought, hey, so I worked full time throughout the whole first two years on that holiday working visa. And then that was running out and someone said, hang on, if you want to stay on, get a student visa, you know, so I applied for a student visa and I borrowed money from one of the gym members that I befriended. And um, he so kindly borrowed me a thousand pounds to apply for the student visa, which I got. And I studied for about a couple of months, if that, and then worked part-time. So I thought, bugger this. So I went back and I started working full-time again. And I realized, well, hang on, this visa is running out rather, you know, rapidly. And someone, a friend of mine said, go and join the British Army. You know, there's quite a few South Africans there. You know, once you pass basic training, then you've got a job in the um, British Defence Force, you know, in, in the Army. And then any immigration issue is not an issue anymore, you know, because they stamp your passport and then you become exempt from any immigration act. You know, you just flash your Army ID card and you go through customs, they're fine. And I thought, great, after all, if I can't join the police force, if I can't go to Venice Beach, California, and be like Arnie, I'm going to join the, the British Army. And 
it was at that time where it was 2003 where it, during the um, I think the second invasion of Iraq were kicking off mm-hmm. um, and it was all over the papers in the UK it was all over the news with the invasion um, and I thought that's my core it was again a natural progression it was that's where I want to be yeah um, I don't think I asked you this before when we talked on Savage Wonder what was 9-11 like for you did that register did that move the needle in any way because you had been somebody that you know obviously you've been raised with these family values you'd known south africa's role in the cold war so there was you know you'd wanted to go to the united states as a bodybuilder you'd wanted to join the police force and i'm saying this because for me it was like so many things coalesced when 9 11 happened it was like oh everything all those movies i watched all those impulses i had all suddenly collided into this is the war this mm. this might be what it is this might be the moment we've all been waiting for would did you have that moment was there any sense of that what, what did 9-11 mean to you obviously as an american i'm going to see it a little differently so mm. what did it mean yeah, for, for you me, for me it was it was a big event that, that that took place i remember standing in the flat that i was renting and yeah it was it was one of those moments that it, it's it's it stopped me in my in my tracks, thinking, "What the heck?" Yeah, it's. But for me, when I joined the the British Army, it wasn't because of that. It was because it was a a way for me to follow my dream. Um, it was more so the invasion of Iraq that yeah. sort of that pushed me forward because it was it was on the news, it was everywhere, um, and I knew of nine eleven. I knew it it took place, and I was then working in a. Uh, a gym as a personal trainer but that wasn't a a, a um, like a nurture or inspiration for me to go and join and then take the fight to the Taliban because back then I had no prior knowledge of who the enemy was at the time I had no idea who the Taliban was who Al-Qaeda sure. was I had no idea for me um, the, the biggest sort of push nudge was uh, Britain's involvement in Iraq at the time so you wouldn't have joined the military if the war hadn't been going on, if Iraq hadn't been going on, do you think? I would have still joined. Yeah. Really? Even I if it was peacetime, if it was the mid nineties, you would have joined. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Definitely. Yeah. It just made too much sense to, to join and the upside yeah. was there. Okay. Yeah. Um, I, 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 you know, it's funny when you were saying all that, like you, know, you weren't really tracking the Taliban and Al Qaeda. I mean, obviously not a lot of people were, um, prior to 9-11, but it did occur to me that that there must have been some cognitive dissonance because South Africa and everything, the whole geopolitical scene in South Africa was, is so wildly different. The players are so different, and your frame of reference in many respects is so different than Western Europe or the United States would have been. So was there very much a sense that you're still a foreigner, and when you're kind of hearing you know, Al-Qaeda and the Taliban, it's like, oh, okay, sure. I guess, yeah, if you guys tell me they're bad, all right, cool. But, you know, like you don't have, you don't have any skin in the game. It's not, it's not your territory. It's not your, your history, your land, right? Exactly. Exactly. For me, it was, okay, cool. So, so they're the enemy, uh, fine. It just, just put me in the right direction, you know, train yeah. me and I'll go do it. Mm-hmm. You know, no worries whatsoever. And then when you're in the military, um, and you're going through boot camp and everything else. Um, how does it strike you? Are you liking it? I loved it. Yeah, I was. I was. I was at home. That was 
that was me. I was in my element. I was the fittest in my life. You know, um, bodybuilding, all training fell to the wayside. And I was okay with that. For me, it was, this, this is me. This is the where I want to be. This is home. You know, um, I remember when I first volunteered, when I finished basic training and I went over to, it's a Northern Ireland that was based there. And they, um, they, they asked for volunteers to join a company of men that, you know, needed to go to Iraq. And I had my hand up. I said, yep, yeah, I want to go. And um, I got picked. And I remember ringing home. I was like, so I spoke to my mom and my dad. And I was over the moon. I'm like, I'm going, you know. And because, again, it was all over the papers. It was in 2005. A lot of units went across. Um, it was a big thing. And I rang home and I said to my mom, guess what? I'm going to Iraq. I'm going to Basra. And um, I remember that she was not happy at all. Yeah. And I was actually pissed off. I said, why aren't you? Yeah. And I was thinking, why aren't you happy yeah. for me? Yeah. But I thought, I'm not going to be disrespectful. I can understand. She's a mom. But um, it was only years later, you know, after all my my tours in Northern Ireland, Iraq and Afghan, that I realized, well, hang on. There was a reason that she felt the way that, that she did because, uh, you know, she... As a single mom, you know, she was the only one there during the time that my dad went. So it was my mom alone there, not knowing if her husband is, is going to come back, you know, because it was different yeah. then, yeah. living through that, you know. And then now her son, of all people, then he deployed in, uh, or he left South Africa. And then, then he, when he joined the, the, the British Army, and then he is going to go. Well, so at that time, I had no idea. When I spoke to my dad, he was, yeah, I think he, he understood. He understood right. that, um, yeah, I was about to deploy. and um, But, yeah, he, he kept the conversation to a minimum. And, yeah, I was, I was over the moon. It, it's funny because there, there is that, that tension that, that civilians and moms certainly, understandably, don't always grasp, which is that for the soldier, your career advancement, your your future is war, and so and there's a, that the desire to test yourself, to prove yourself, that I think drives so many to join the military, and to and to push for deployments. So I could see why, um, why you would be pissed off that it's like, hey, this is my, I, this is my chance. It's like saying, hey, I get to go to the Super Bowl and having your family go. What the Super Bowl? That's dangerous. You could get hurt there. And it's like, you no, know, no, but that's the Super Bowl. That's you know what I'm here to do. And and the, to you, it's the future. And to somebody else, all they see is the risk. Um, I can, yeah, I, I think that that captures it well. I wanted to ask about that. Um, I mean, you had been in Northern Ireland though. So how did your family feel about that when you said you're going to Northern Ireland? Were they tracking where things were and what the politics were and the and the security situation was there? How did they feel about that? Because it wasn't like you just walked off the street and went right to Iraq. Hmm. No, it was, um, I don't think, I think they felt the same as me. I mean, I, I had no prior knowledge of what was going on in Northern Ireland. You know, it was, it was a big thing, the, um, all the troubles, yeah. all the issues in, in Northern Ireland. I had no idea. I just thought, great, I'm going to go to Northern Ireland, you know, um, not the UK. Um, I think for, the, for them, it's, it was just another country that I, that I went to, you know, um, I had no idea. I walked into this environment and I had to learn rather quickly um, about the history of the place um, because there was still a big risk of 
I've been uh, taken out by a sniper. Uh, I've been shot or killed. You know, there was still a, a big risk um, in nor- in uh, Northern Ireland. You know, but I had I had to learn quickly, and I think I was very naive, and I didn't do any any prime sort of uh, research on what occurred during that. What was your job? What was your assignment in Northern Ireland? Were you guys just doing cordon and searches, or were you guys manning checkpoints? Like, what, what was what was the job when you were there? Um, because I joined the infantry battalion, so we were tasked to do various uh, patrols, whether it be um, on uh, on foot and vehicle, uh, stop and search. Uh, we were tasked to assist the Northern Ireland Police Force during the uh, marching season. We've got the Catholics and the Protestants when they were in March, and they've got the bands playing. To, um, to assist the police in case public order breaks out. So they, then they train you in the public order role to assist the uh, Island Police Force into so, various, yeah. Yeah, into various um, uh, patrols. And you would go to various outposts as well and stay there for a certain amount of time, uh, do various patrols in the countryside, and yeah, again, assist the Northern Island Police Force. So there's so many parallels, it seems like to me, with when we as Americans complain about our military being used for police actions and being used like law enforcement, you were literally there as the riot police, essentially, yeah. right? And yeah. and, and yeah. doing all that and crowd control. Um, I'm curious. So now, you know, we have a whole generation of GWAT veterans in the U.S. And there's always discussions, especially on social media about um you know the war in afghanistan and our role in it uh how we were deployed how we were used even when i was in afghanistan a lot of bitching and moaning about why are we here what are we doing um you know getting the clarity of the mission all that stuff but the british army was operating inside northern ireland for equally as long if not longer Mm. was there any sense among the British troops, when you guys were in Northern Ireland, of oh Jesus, we're in Northern Ireland again. Oh God, this shithole. Oh man, I hate this assignment. Uh, you know that same stuff that the same whinging that we would hear in, in the U.S. now about Afghanistan or Iraq. It was around, yeah. I mean, we we minded bitch about everything, you know, the fact that yeah. we had to go on patrols, and um, it was just a another um, place that that, that the um, that we deployed to. Um, yeah, so there's a lot of bitching and money going on. Uh, but for for us and for me, it was it was something new. It was a new experience. Um, yeah, it was just an, another area for um, for us infantry um, personnel to deploy to. Were, were there guys that were like, "Oh, this is my fifth time deploying to Northern Ireland. I'm so over this place. You know, I'm done with it." Was that yeah. a pervasive attitude? Yeah, yeah, because a lot of units went through. Because uh, for us, um, we were there on a two year residential tour. Um, and then you had other, so once we left, another unit would then fly in and take over, take over the barracks, take over the, the buildings and everything else. So, yeah, it, it happened a lot. A lot of units um, done the rotation. So you had a lot of blokes that will be there on the second and the third or fourth time. You know, I think at that stage, they'll be, oh, this is shit. Not back here again. I'm back in this area, back in Belfast. Yeah, yeah. And what did, the, how did, what was the learning curve like for you? Because in addition to the police, the crowd control aspects of the job, Sounds like doing, you know, being at a, a an outpost and doing kind of presence patrols. You were sort of doing coin a little bit, right? You were kind of going out and, you know, 
you know, going out and mixing and mingling a little bit with the locals, right? Yeah, a, a little bit. Yeah, you were still told to keep your distance from from certain areas. You were still told you're in your, your downtime. You know, certain areas, certain bars, certain clubs, certain taxi facilities is where well, they, they are out of out of bounds. Don't use them because some of the terrorist organizations that we were told they still operate. And if they see a British soldier, they'll kidnap you and they'll kill you. Or um, so you've got to be careful. But if you tell anything to a infantryman rifleman if you tell them don't go there they're going to go there you know and i remember um the end thing was to you go to a club or a bar and uh, <laughs> uh you would hear all these stories about you know when you try to you know flip with the, with the local girls there and then they would ask you so what do you do and then everyone made up these bizarre or uh, weird titles you know someone would say oh, I'm, I'm over here i'm um the, I'm a, I'm a coach for a rugby team or I play rugby, you know. Um, and then you would look at these blacks standing there and they're all like army lads. They all stand a certain way. They hold themselves. Yeah. They look a certain way. The hair shortcut. So so that was, you know, uh, used a lot. And then some blacks might say, I'm a dolphin trainer or I'm an I'm a underwater uh, knife fighting instructor. You know, all these bizarre things, you know. Um, yeah. Stolen valor of all the real underwater knife fighting instructors that are out there trying to hit on girls in nightclubs. So the real stolen valor moments. Yeah, I got you. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Was this the first time? This is gonna sound weird, but was this the first time uh, that you had been hated when you walked on patrol? Did you was that was that the vibe that you're walking and like, wow, that's the first time I've had somebody mean mug me like that before? Or yeah. Were you like, no, that I, I've, I've had that before. I saw that in South Africa in certain ways. Or w- what was that like for you? Um, that was the first taste of someone hating you because of the uniform, because you represent um, something that they despise. You represent these, the British government. You in a, in, a, in a uniform, you've got the Union Jack on, you're the army, regardless if you're black, if you're white. Um, you, you've got the uniform on. We can hate you. Remember, it's kids, young kids on the side of the road. We were driving these lightly armored uh, vehicles, doing patrols, and we were the. I think we were the last unit to have done vehicle and foot patrols. And then they would brick the vehicle. You could you, you could hear these these rocks and bricks pinging off the side of the vehicle. And I thought, you little shit, you know, we're uh, helping, assisting you. And I thought, shit, I, I need to learn quickly. I need to dive into the history to find out why it is. But then again, it's young kids growing up in an environment where they are taught to hate the other side, to hate the Brits. Um, yeah, so that was the first taste of that. And during the public order roll, during the ride season, yeah, and then being bricked, petrol bombed, you know, they would throw all sorts of missiles at the um, at the troops missiles meaning anything that you can find to throw whether it be a uh, part of the pavement would it be a chair would it be a signpost anything they could find to to um, throw or assault the, um, the front line of the, um, the soldiers and that, that's that's they're holding the the shields so as an American we all know about the fighting season in Iraq Afghanistan or Afghanistan especially What's the riot season in Northern Ireland? Well, what is that? Riot, what? Se- riot season is, is where all the marching season, we've got the, on both sides, the Protestants and the Catholics, they will then march down the streets, have their pipe bands, 
and the banners and the music. And they would then go to scenarios and at times to me, it appeared to, to me that they tried to rock each other up in a sense of trying to um, instigate something to, to provoke the other side. And if the other side, especially the young kids, would see the other side rocking up with their banners, then they would start breaking and throwing petrol bombs and, and cause lots of damage and cause issues. And then you've got the, the police, the Northern Island police, they would stand there. And it's because they're the Northern Island police, they would get bricks, they would get their vehicles, petrol bombs, they would be petrol bombed. And then we would assist, and purely because we, you know, uh, we were British soldiers, purely because of that, we'll be a bigger target. And then you assist to go in with your shields and your, uh, your. <laughs> they, they gave us, issue as echoey sticks, which looks like a, a mini baseball bat. And then you are taught these basics in ride control training, um, how to form up, how to strike a person, uh, how not to strike a person. You know, that attacks you, how to hold the shields. Um, it, was, it was brutal, but the training, it was relentless. It was brutal. We were told, you know, you train hard, you fight easy. And then it was a whole different environment standing there. And you've got these kids kicking the shields or people trying to snatch you. Um, it, was, it was full on. How long was the marching season? How long does it, what, what, what triggers it? What, what's the... What are the dates? What's what's the time? And then, and then how long does that last? I don't recall the actual sort of um, dates wise. Okay, so it wasn't like some like it, was it predictable though? Was it was it honestly yeah, it was like set, yeah? There were there were set dates um, for that. Okay, um, but we were tasked not just to be uh, assisting or be part of that, but we were tasked for, for various other um, ops as well, doing various patrols and uh, various and. Uh, um, Guarding positions and so forth. Um, how, for lack of a better phrase, how combat experienced? How um, how butch did you feel after all that? Were you like, "Hey, I've been in it now a little bit, and I feel like I've earned some stri- my stripes as a soldier," or did you feel like, "Yeah, I'm 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 still a baby at this, and and you know, I'm not really a soldier yet." Now I reckon I was I was still. Um, Still a little baby, still, still, still learning. I still had to prove myself, prove myself to my peers, um, my sergeant, my my, uh, you know, my brothers in arms. I started to prove myself. You know, there was still a long way to go, even though I was much older than some of them. Because I joined when I was twenty six. Uh, it was in 2000 and, uh, 2003, I think it was. Um, yeah, I was the oldest, but for me, mm. it wasn't. A, it wasn't an issue. It wasn't a thing at all. You know. Did you guys lose anybody? Did you take any casualties while you were over there? No. no. Okay. So it was a lot of it was a lot of police actions. It was a lot of fist fights and riot stuff and all that. But fortunately, yeah. nobody was getting killed, or nobody no. got killed then. Okay. No, no one. And then, um, and then you volunteer to go to Iraq, and yeah. and then you describe that. I know, I know the answers to some of this stuff, but walk us through. Uh, that thought process. How g'd up are you on the flight over there? Oh man, it was. I remember the time um, because we were still on a two-year residential tour in in Northern Ireland. It was it was unheard of to deploy from one you know operational tour onto the next, and so they sent over a, a, a company. I think it was um, C Company at the time, Charlie Company, and I was still in A Company at the time, and I volunteered. And I got in. But it was the build-up. 
it was the feeling. It was like we're going. This is this is this is war. We're going to close in, and we would be watching all these videos that previous units made. You know, where they add music to it, and you see these American units, and, and there's and there's bombs, and there's explosions, and there's rock music, Metallica playing, uh, ACDC, and we were roaring to go. We were ready. Um, there's big build-ups. We've done all our training within all the island that we could. They were safe enough, and then we also. Uh, went over to the UK, do some more training there to learn more about the language and the culture. And we flew back to Northern Ireland. You could go and leave. And, and I didn't go back home to South Africa. You know, I went, I started, I traveled a bit in Northern mm. Ireland and I went something else. And then when we got there, it was this big anticlimax. You know, it was like, oh, this is shit. This is a, a lot of um, foot patrols, a lot of vehicle patrols. And I, I was there for six months and I didn't, even fire off mobile system once, you know, no shot fire off. We were attacked quite a number of times on the camp, you know, indirect fire coming in your uh, mortar rounds, you know. So that was that was a big thing. That was like, oh shit, okay, cool. They they're attacking the with a camp. But after a while you get used to it, you know. You get and this was down at Basra, right? Yeah, Basra Palace. Yeah, yeah. Which was one of Saddam's old um, palace buildings. And um so it's kind of like losing the heart on a little bit. Right, you, no, you're kind of down there, yeah. And and what was the, was that typical for everyone there? Was everybody there kind of let down and on an emotional dump, an adrenaline dump? I would say, so, especially for um for my units, yeah, it was, yeah, it was. We we wanted, you know, we were infantrymen, you know, you trained to close in, capture, or kill the enemy, regardless of the weather, the season, the, the terrain. You were trained for that. You were trained to to go kill the enemy, you know, and and. The enemy was at that stage for us, especially in the part that we deployed to, not really seen. You could hear the enemy close by in, in a sense of them trying to attack uh, the camp or the, or the palace buildings you know, with the indirect mortifier. You know? um, the aim was dark shit. Um, but as, as the, the, the tour went on, the, the IEDs became you know, a big thing. The improvised explosive devices, you know, the roadside bombs, you know, and it was during that tour that we we lost um, a few men, you know, on on the, on um, some of the vehicles. Uh, there's one team they got hit not once but twice, and, and they they and, they, and we lost, um, you know, two two men to them. Um, how yeah. much how much did the rules of engagement affect that? Or did you want? To, I mean, I'm sure you wanted to strike back. I'm sure you wanted to rain some hate down on people mm. when you're taking losses from IEDs. Would the ROE restrict you from that, or was yeah, it just massively. opportunity? Okay, all right. Massively, yeah, it, it wasn't as bad like Northern Ireland. Northern Ireland, you, you had to be very careful. Otherwise, if you, uh, there's politics uh, involved, uh, there's history, there's there's a lot. But we were taught the right way. Sometimes, you know, we thought it was the bullshit way of doing it. You know, we had to stop and say these things, and and yet actually say um certain things in a certain way to warn this person that you're gonna um, make ready your, your weapon system that you're gonna cop the weapon system that you're gonna bring it up and it's just it's a long list of things that you had to do that you were trained on in iraq it was yeah you know you load your weapon system but you don't make ready any patrols and if you came under contact then you made ready and then you um you fire back you know you you protect yourself you defend yourself you know so yeah the rules of engagement um they were there for some reason and um 
allowed Samsung to deploy on various crypto vehicle patrols. It was amongst the population, you know, they was still, it was buzzer at the time, vibrant with, you know, the shops still open. It was, life was still going on for, for the locals. Uh, but I think for us as infantrymen, you know, uh, we felt like caged animals and then we were let out, but we couldn't use the, the, the skills, um, especially for some of the young kids, you know, they were trained to, um, you know, to close in and, and go and kill the enemy. Uh, and it, it was, I think for a lot of us, it was very frustrating. So it was a big anticlimax for us, more personal for me it was. Um, it, talk just a little bit, because I, I, with Iraq, I always like to emphasize um, the anger at the rules of engagement and all that. Was that an issue? Did you notice like a seething anger amongst guys where it was like, motherfucker we can't we can't take the gloves off and that there's opportunity and we just can't do what we're trained to do it's not even just that the opportunities denied you it's that the opportunity is right there and you're just and it's just an administrative halt but it's not a practical halt to the to the action was, was that was that a case did you see guys kind of really raging a little bit frustration really yeah. frustrated you know it's like cage animals with lines pacing up and down you know um and we're doing endless vehicle patrols, foot patrols. And a lot of times I thought, what the hell are we doing here? Because we're doing vehicle patrols in the hardest part of the day. There's no locals on the streets. All the shops are closed, you know. So they they were, obviously, they were born in an environment where you don't go out when it's bloody, you know, super hot. You go at nighttime. You open the shops at nighttime. You know, it was frustrating. After a while, I thought, this is bullshit. I'm not going to volunteer again. I'm not coming back to this hellhole again. And yeah, so the following year we got deployed back there again, and it was the same. It was a short tour, but it was the same where you know we didn't find any any, um, any rounds. Um, but during the first and second tour, we were yeah, assisting our um, special forces units a lot, especially during nighttime, doing various uh, raids, various uh, strike ops, where we assisted all these big operations going on at the time. You know, so so for that. For us, for me, it was a bit more excitement. I thought that's what we trained for, you know, to do all these strike ops, to do these, these operations, and to go at nighttime and, and find these uh, these personnel of, of interest. You know? so, so that was a bit of a highlight. But otherwise, yeah, it was frustrated to go and to a place that, that you knew the enemy, they were there, and they were actively trying to kill us, you know, from a distance, yeah. you know. And yeah. you couldn't really just say to your um, to your commander, so let's let's get in these vehicles and go and find them. You know, how was it for you? I mean, did you rub shoulders a lot with uh, with the rest of uh, the international forces? Did you work with Americans at all? Uh, were you over there? Or were you guys pretty isolated, just working with yourselves? Um, pretty much isolated with a few, a few um, other units. From other parts, I, I, I'm not sure if it was Norway or uh, any other European sort of nations. Because at that stage, it was at the peak where you had various other nations there. But yeah. for us, for uh, southern Iraq, um, it was given over to to the Brits, right? British Army. Um, we had smaller units of the parachute regiment that deployed with the British SAS alongside American units up north in Baghdad and those places. But for us, predominantly, it was just us with a few other European uh, countries that had seen their forces in. And then we would bump into them 
exchange conversation and then we would go on our way um but then we were i, I think I, rem- I remember at times we were quite shocked the fact that they they never had any electronic counter warfare equipment with them mm-hmm. um we had um and then we thought heck because a lot of these ideas they are initiated with uh wire or um electronic uh, equipment you know and we had it and they would they would just get in their light skin or soft skin vehicles and go on patrols you know and thought shit man you're gonna get hit um but no uh, we we never took part in, in any missions with, with any american units no did that frustration at all and it, that frustration coupled with supporting sas and and all that on the strikes operations did that at all start to motivate you for, hey, maybe I need to level up in the military. Maybe I should be thinking about SAS. Maybe, you know, line company isn't where I need to be. Was that a thought or was it, hey, this was just the wrong place, wrong time. And let me just keep pushing and I'll, I'll get my fight here in a little bit regardless. I would say it was a bit of both um, at that stage because we were in, based in Northern Ireland and then we left and we went over to Cyprus. And it was during that stage where I thought, okay, it's time to level up. It's, it's time to move up, you know. Uh, but then growing up in South Africa and then leaving South Africa, going to the UK, I was still very much introvert, quiet, shy, not believing in myself. Um, people around me would see it in me. They would see that I have the, the confidence. I have the ability. I can do this. But then I'll be very shocked at the fact that they do see that. And it was over the years, slowly, where I got out of my shell and I got the self-confidence. And, and uh, I believed in myself. And I, it was at that time I thought, I probably need to level up. I need to move on. And then um, I thought, like, I need to go and do a some some type of course, maybe a different unit. And then it was thanks to one the one captain that um, was in my unit. He, he was part of, of the reconnaissance um, uh, setup that he wanted me to go and join to do a course selection to be part of the rookie platoon. And that was, I think, my saving grace. And then I thought, okay, cool. Um, you see it in me. Uh, okay, I'll, I'll go. And I, and I did the, the rookie, uh, reconnaissance selection course. I passed it. And um, yeah, so I finished that sort of, um, in that section in my last years in, in the army. So, and, and that helped. Um, because we were part of a, a fire support company, which is your senior company within our units and in that company, you've got Ricky platoon, uh, you've got water platoon, you've got the machine gunners, uh, and, and they are your um, senior, senior blokes or senior bods. And uh, it was that stage where I thought, okay, this is it, I'm, I'm enjoying this, this is me, this is my calling. And uh, so that stage when we deployed back to Iraq, I was with this Ricky unit, it was a bit better, mm. but it wasn't until we deployed to Afghan. That, that everything changed. So the se- the second Iraq deployment was with the Recce platoon. Yeah. Okay. And then that's that's probably why you were supporting special operations units more. That right? could be yeah. 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 Um. And then um, and then going to Afghanistan. What was your expectations in going to Afghanistan? Did you think okay now I'll get into it, or did you think oh, this is going to be another dick tease and this isn't going to pan out? And mm-hmm. you know my expectations are really low. <laughs> No, it was, uh, we knew it was a whole different ballgame because we, at that, that stage, we already had various units um, deployed to, to Afghan in 2006. 
because of our role and where we were um, located, because we were, we were based in Cyprus. And in Cyprus, strategic, it's an ideal place to deploy from. Um, you had various uh, American uh, air assets based there with them deployed from there. You, uh, you had the, um, the U-2 uh, spy plane, various reconnaissance um, aircraft they're going to deploy from there, fly across. Um, so it was a hop, skip, and a jump, and then boom, you're in Iraq, or it won't take long until you're in, in Afghan. We knew that it was it was going to be different. We knew it was going to be full on because we had various other units deployed um, at the same time all, all over the, the place. You had units or teams in Iraq, in, uh, in Jordan, assisting with training, you had units in, in, in Afghan, and, and we knew it was going to be a different ballgame altogether. Where did you do your train up for Afghanistan? Was it in Cyprus? In Cyprus and I think the UK as well, uh, okay. train, but mostly in, in Cyprus. Uh, okay. But we knew it was going to be different. Um, we just knew that, that, that everything changed. Our training intensified. And we took it really serious uh, because I remember when we got back off our Christmas leave because um, we had our second deployment to Iraq. And then we went on a Christmas leave. We got back the first day and we were told to know um, that everyone had to go to the parade square. And I remember the commanding officer that said to us, um, hope you had a great leave. Um, everyone's going to get uh, ready for uh, training to deploy to Afghan. And you could just feel the excitement. You thought, yeah, this is this is us. This is what we trained for. We're going to go to Afghan. Uh, what was the turnaround time? What was your downtime between each deployment, between the first Iraq deployment and the second one, and the second Iraq deployment in Afghanistan? How long How long between deployments? Uh, well, my first Iraq tour was in 2005. Um, that was six months. And then we had a decent rest, a decent time to spend time at home to go and leave. You know, um, in the British Army, they gave us uh, enough, a big chunk of um, pre-deployment leave, post-deployment leave. Um, we also had r and during the, uh, our uh, first Iraq tour. Um, to me, it made no, no sense because you trained, you're all hyped up to go and you're intense, you're focused, you're there and then then they ship you off back home on, on leave, you know, and you're still in the same mindset, you know. Yeah, I, right. I couldn't switch off, you know. Yeah. This, this is bogus. I shouldn't be here, you know. I should be with, with my with my mates, with the men. That's why I should be. And then um, enough decent time, a couple of months between the two deployments, because it was 2005 I went to Iraq, the first one again in 2006. So it was enough time for training. Yeah. Um, so it sounds it sounds like a one of those high up tempos six months on six months off type rotations yeah, that you're yeah. kind of doing. But also right? in, in, in Cyprus because we were there, um, we were on a, a, a standby basis where if anything happens, we we're the team that's placed on standby. You know, so 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 you had uh, a week's notice to move, and then you were down to uh, seventy two hours notice to move or forty eight hours notice to move. So because of our location and we were placed on that roster that if anything goes down we would then deploy and that's exactly what what happened what occurred so we deployed to rock and then various other units at the same time uh, deployed to afghan in 2006 so during the first year in cyprus it was phenomenal it was lovely we loved it you know we were on the on the first every night you know down in in lanaka or in or in Ayanapa, 
you know, it was it was great. We've done some training, but during the downtime, you know, you would then start early and finish early. It was it was great, but it was during the second year. We were hardly there. We were always away somewhere. Mm. So it was it was high tempo, but we loved it. I mean, that's why we, we joined. It was what we wanted. Can you talk a little bit about that downtime and about that mental switch? I'm just thinking about Iraq and the fact that, you know, you've now had, let's call it combat blue balls twice. And now you're supposed to be unwinding. And yes, there's training and all that. But when you're not training in those brief moments, um, did you notice guys were getting into trouble? Was there just like kind of like, you know, dudes are just like, man, I'm so pent up and I, and there hasn't been an outlet for it. And, you know, I've been deprived twice now, two bites at the apple and still no juice. I mean, how, how difficult was the downtime? And um, yeah, just talk about that part. Oh man, it was, it was, um, it was difficult. Um, There were a lot of fights, a lot of people drinking, you you were drinking a lot, or you went to the gym or you went to the beach, you know, you could only do so much, you know, um, during your leave, you could leave the island or fly back to the UK, which I've done a few times, you know. Um, or if it's a big chunk, you would go back, you know, home. For me, home was South Africa at the time, you know, so I would go. But it, it, it's a long way to go. You have to book the flights. It's a lot of money. Otherwise, some of the downtime is uh, you would spend time in the accommodation. We, we would call it the block. And you would just drink, you know. It was, it was a norm. Um, it was what we what we did. You know, you you, you went through this high tip of training and, and this big expectation of you need to be great at your job. Your job, you know, was an infantryman to closing mm-hmm. with the enemy, to exploit, to find and fix and kill. And then you yeah, had to switch off, and it was difficult to flick that switch. We were, we were I think that switch a lot of times it was permanently on permanently switched on so yeah going to fight a lot of blokes when they will they got in trouble or they got arrested you know um or you would go to the gym and uh, or you would go to the beach we had our own private beach there um it was it was full on it was it, it, it was never we would never do anything 50 percent. it was always 100 percent. you know when we would be in the block drinking we would be drinking yeah um, and then you go out on on town and um, we'd stay out, you know, and you know that you had to be back for first parade in the morning, but you already had your uniform there waiting for you. You've done it before you went on the person, it was ironed, it was immaculate, you know, in quick shape, you were on the parade square and you could smell the alcohol in the air. And I'm pretty sure a lot of units would have done the same. And you would go for a run and you couldn't stop and spew, you would spew while you were running, you know, and uh, the PTI would laugh. Uh, like we were, we're done together, you know. You would go out on, on the last year. We'd go to the gym together, you know. We'd do everything together. And then as soon as we deployed, it was it was a, it was a release. It was like, okay, cool. Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. What, what strikes me is that you hadn't really built much of a community and a support system outside of the military. Your support system really was the military at this point. Your parents are very far away. Um. Was, did anybody, did your mom, did your dad, did anybody say, Hey man, you're, you're different now, or there's, did you, did anybody ever reflect any changes to you or had you changed? Were, were, were you not that changed? What was that like for you? 
I think back then I always thought I was the same person. I was the same Neville. But they could see the change in me, especially when I came back after Afghan. Uh, my sister, my mom, I'm pretty sure my dad, but it was, it was the females in the family. It was my mom and my sister. They could see the change. And I remember my sister, she would she'd be very vocal about it, saying, you've changed, you know. Uh, it was just in the, the way I replied to questions or in a text message on the phone that she could sense that I've changed. And I would get, I would be quite pissed off the fact that I believed that I didn't. But they could see the gradual change within me over the years, you know, during my, my, my army career. And afterwards, you know, they, they would say uh, that I turned into this very quite aggressive person, that they, the way I replied just things you know that I used to be this very soft spoken um, mm-hmm. polite person I'm still polite you know but for them they could see it that their their son uh, has changed and, did, and whatever did the same um had you changed much after your second Iraq deployment or did it really take Afghanistan for there to be that change and something that people would notice or were they seeing it even after Iraq I would say Afghan Afghan was the word okay so talk one. talk about Afghanistan. So you guys went to Kandahar or Helmand. Where were you? Uh, we flew into, I think, Bastion. Okay. Bastion was this big, massive air base, air facility. You know? It was the size of, I think, a small city. You know? It had everything there. It had the, the best field hospital there. I remember they, they took us on a tour. Why? I don't know. But um, someone, some officer thought it was a good idea to take our small units on a tour through the field hospital. It had the best equipment, the latest um, technology in saving lives, uh, surgeons, doctors, both military and, and private. And that bothered me. And I don't know why, but I thought, what the fuck are you taking us through through the field hospital? You know, it's 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 not just a tent, it's like a full-on facility. They've flown in all these containers, all these buildings. They've constructed this place in over the years. It became a massive um, infrastructure, you know. Uh, and it really bothered me that this officer or this geezer is taking us through a tour of the facility. I thought, you're wasting my time here. You know, I need to prep. We, I need to be back in the old shitty tent prepping my gear because we're going to go in the next week and fly from there to a smaller farm. That really bothered me. Um, and... So we stayed there for a week, done some in-house training on things that I believe should have done. Well, they should have done that in Cyprus or the UK, but because I think at that stage, a lot of gear weren't available. So they would manufacture gear and then fly straight into Afghan. And from there, give it to the troops and then they would use it on, on the ground. Simple stuff like a metal detector, you know. Um, but then again, 2006, 2007 for us and IEDs, it wasn't a big threat. It was the, the small arms fire, your snipers, your uh, RPG, mortar rounds. That was a big thing for us, when, especially during my time. And so then they would take us on a crash course. This is how you look for, for a mine. If you get into a minefield, this is what you do. I thought, I'm not going to remember this. You know, why should you show this to me now? It's, this you know, needed to be done months ago. You know, or they would take you on a crash course. This is how... You would use a 50 cal machine gun. This is how you load. And I thought, okay, this is more sensible, but stuff that should have been, been done ages ago. But you thought, okay, cool, no worries. You know, it's not the first time they tried to, you know, show bullshit to us and 
and have all this bullshit rules down the, uh, the week there and then we deployed to, to a smaller fob. And then when you were at the smaller fob, um, were you taking over for one of your own units or were you replacing a completely different entity? Uh, it was one of our old units. It was uh, the Royal Marines. Uh, they were holding down a, uh, it was a farm building, a big farm, a, a big farm with a lot of land, a, a lot of, a, a big uh, three-story building and small, a few smaller buildings that I'm pretty sure that in 2006 or prior to that, that the British Army then somehow bought from a local farmer, I think. And then it was the parachute regiment that they constructed and fortified uh, the actual area. And that was also done under the contact. So they were getting attacked from all directions. At the same time, you had these big um, armored diggers filling these Escobasian um, uh, bags of, of sand, you know. So if anyone deployed, they know what a Escobasian wall is, you know, it's these, you know, 45, you know, flat pack uh, metal containers you open up, you chuck sand in, and, and you build that, you know, it was, and then they were doing that time in, in Sangen. It was, it was called Sangen DC, Sangen District Center. And then the Royal Marines took over, their rotation, and then uh, my unit took over from the uh, Royal Marines. And when you were there, were you guys, um, what was your job? What was your, what was the assignment supposed to be? Were you guys supposed to be out and pushing the patrols and getting out there? Were you being used as a strike support element or a strike element itself? What, what was, what was the, the assignments? What were the things? Assigned? I think initially the assignment was to, to fly in and then start to, to, to um, just push and flush out the Taliban to bridge patrols. Uh, just try cops and go from there. But um, we were told that's not going to happen because the first 20 days we were in uh, defense of our small compound, of our facility. We were defending it for, uh, it was 20 or 19 days straight because we were attacked every day, multiple times from multiple directions, you know. And, uh, and was it all small arms or was it indirect as well? Indirect, small arms, sniper, mortar, um, Machine guns, if they had any uh, RPGs, um, yeah, it was really relentless. It was, it was a big eye opener. Like shit, this this is how we are. We just flown into the bloody into into hell. Did you have casualties right away? No, 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 no. We didn't. No, it was um, likely for us. No. But it wasn't um, until my units deployed again on 2009. I didn't go. I um, I went and I, I was um, on a on a posting. But yeah, during that tour, they they lost a lot of blokes. Yeah, I think it was seven in total. But they they lost. But then again, the whole tactic of the Taliban changed, where it went from small arms fire to IEDs. And then the Brits, the, the units had to change their tanks. But I think it was the same throughout Afghan, you know. Yeah. It, it changed hell of a lot from you would think in a contact with, with the enemy to everything laying out IEDs all, all over the place. And then it slowed down a lot of patrols. But yeah, it was yeah, it was an opener for me and for us in 2007. It was a big yeah, welcome to, to Afghan from, from the, um, the Taliban. And in 2007, uh, that was another six-month deployment? Uh, for us, it was four months. Really. Four months. It was four months. Yeah. Um, but that was your first time then in combat, in proper combat. 
Yeah, yeah. That was the first time when the rules of engagement was if you seen to move, you open. Uh, because at that stage, the local population, they fled the, the, the district centre and the town, and there's like a whole bazaar, this row of shops. There was deserted. There were no one there. On the outskirts of Sangen, various other farm buildings, you would then see um, after we initially got out and we started patrolling, we started these various strike ops. And then I think it was the 82nd <clears throat> Airborne Division, the Americans, that helped and assisted. It was the Royal Marines with their Viking armored vehicles and then us. And then we just then went into various directions and we just flushed out, started to do various compound clearance and flush out the, or the Taliban. And that was that was great because then it was then our time to to get out and then stay out for four or five days, you know, and then go from compound to compound and just flush out the uh, the Taliban. When was your fun meter pegged? When were you like, okay, I'm ready to go home? Or were you if they had told you, hey, you're gonna stay for another four months, would you have been down for it? Yeah. I think, yeah, I would say. Um I, I would I would have been down. I mean, um, yeah, it was it was down to, to the fact that you know if if they say to us okay cool this area that you're gonna go to I was like okay, cool I'm, I'm happy with that you know that's the orders I'll go you know um, I was with some very good men great friends people that I can, I'm proud to call my brother and um, we had spent many many hours in Cyprus drinking playing rugby together and socializing training so you go through the hardship. And the good times together. So um, I think for me personally, it would not have been that a big a deal to stay on. But it was nearing the back end where I felt like, okay, cool, it's time to eventually move on. You know, it was it was starting to affect him, I think a lot of us, especially me mentally, as it slowly went on. But uh, I think I would have easily pushed that aside and then stayed on purely because you know it was expected from us. So then I could push those emotions of feeling sign aside box it up and then crack on with the objective what was the most challenging part of that first afghanistan deployment to you during the time or yeah. afterwards no during, during what yeah what was taxing you what was mentally stressing you out the most during that deployment i would say it was the first 20 days of sitting there okay being sitting ducks and being attacked from all sides, all directions, multiple times in a day. And we can't leave, you know, we were at that one stage, we were running low on ammunition uh, and food. Walks, it was an issue because uh, a small section of Sangan River went through our compound. Um, I think that helped with the irrigation of farmland for the uh, for farmers, you know, it was there when we got there. So it was an issue. We had the Royal Marines um, uh, and unit there that would then filter the water and they could save the drink for us. But it was that stage where we were just sitting there and um, it was just getting attacked and they were getting better. They were really getting really, really good. And um, it was especially the mortar rounds, you know, when we were just yeah. sitting there and you could hear yeah, the first round fall, it would come in. You would think, okay, but here we go. And then it would fall just outside the watchtower and you think, shit. And the next one would fall inside the fog inside the camp and that third one would actually hit something at that moment um being confronted with kind of the immediacy of the threat and the fact that, that you were you were helpless to some degree obviously not completely but to some degree um what did you find yourself leaning on 
what what was supporting you? Was it just grit? Were you just gritting your teeth and going and biting down hard and just going, I just got to get through this? Did you find yourself reaching out to whether at a higher power, making any mental deals with yourself? Where was your head at during that? I would say it was a combination of just biting the bullets and spilling my thoughts on paper. I had this journal that I kept. Initially, I kept it purely because I wanted to mark down the amount of times we got contacted. This was during the first week that we got there that um, you could hear all these reports coming in of people being attacked, whether it be American units, British units, you know, and I thought, shit, you know, I need to lock this down. I don't know why I did it, but I just felt the need to lock it down. And then um, our um, flight in for my team got delayed because there were two lads that got killed in the same compound that we were about to take over. Uh, it was a, I was told it was an airburst RPG. Um, it was, they were in this watchtower and they got taken out. So we had to wait. And so my, my unit, my team's flight and got delayed for, I think, like 48 hours. And I started logging it down the time, you know, the, the amount, the caliber, uh, a lot of detail. But then it wasn't until later on that I thought there's not much that one can do. You know, you can either eat or sleep, you can clean your weapon systems. Um, or we had a makeshift gym there that, that some of the lads constructed, but I think I went in there twice. And then I just thought, well, start writing down. So I started to, to log down. Initially, just sort of my my opinion on on the war and various, and then it spilled into thoughts and feelings, and then thoughts about the scenery because you'll be in this area and thinking, what the hell? I mean, I'm in war, yeah, but you've got this beautiful scenery, the scenic mountains, you know, the the, the Sangin Valley, very uh, surreal. And then I started to, to write more about that, and then it just spilled into that being my my escape, my, my release. And um, again, that even that I kept to myself. I thought, I'm not there going to show any of the lads what I've written down. I'm going to keep that quiet, you know. And even back then, I'm not going to go over to any command and say, listen, yeah, I'm not in that like, mental space. It wasn't a thing. Yeah. I thought, shit, yeah. they're going to they gonna probably give me extra duties, you know, if I rock up to them and then they'll just tell me to piss off, you know. So that was the, the release. On the flight out of Afghanistan after that first deployment, what are your emotions? Are you feeling relief? Are you feeling, boy, I, do- I really dodged some bullets, literally and figuratively? Or are you um, itching to go back? I think for us, it was, it was a relief. It was on that flight out, the Chinook helicopter that came in. There was three of them. It was, it was quite surreal because we were told on the way in, it's going to be at night. And it was an interesting journey in. But... It, on the way out, once we finished and we knew, okay, uh, next unit is, is going to take over. It was in, in, in the daytime. I thought, well, this is fucking odd. The fact that we're flying out in these big bullet magnets in the day, three of them. But I thought, if it's my time, it's my time. There's nothing I can do about that. Right. Um, but it was the flight out. You could, you could feel it within. You could see it on the expression on people's faces. You know, they, 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 they knew it was about to end, but it wasn't over just yet. And you could feel it uh, bowling and bowling once we got on the tailgate. We're on there, and you knew there was a big chance of being shot down. There was a big, big, big chance. But it wasn't until we landed 
but you could feel it. Everyone in the back just hands up and yelling. He's like, yes, we made it. You know, you could, you could feel the excitement. And I remember, specifically remember last time when I unloaded my, my machine gun. And uh, it, was, it, was, it was great, you know, that, that feeling of it's finished, it's over. You know, it's, it's no more the fact that we dodged all this blitz. We escaped death, so to speak, you know, we came close. It was, uh, it was an overwhelming feeling, very overwhelming. Did you, was there any sense of taking the money and running after that, that you're like, hey, you know something, I, um, I'm good. We, we did it. And I don't want to lose that euphoria that we all made it out and it's time for me to bug out. Or was there a sense of, um, no, I'm, I'm here for the duration and hopefully it goes that well next time, but you know, I'm here regardless. No, I think it was when I got back to Cyprus, I knew something was up and I, I just I had to get away and I did some stupid things that wasn't in my character. I remember one day I went on a run with my record platoon and I just thought like this and I just stopped. And um, I remember my platoon sergeant said, what the hell is up with you, Johnson? Uh, and then he made the right decision to, to tell me just to go back to camp. I just, I just had enough. I just thought, I don't want to do this. You know, something clicked. I had no idea what it was. Uh, the fact that it could be mental issues or it could be the fact that I just had enough. And um, it was that stage where um, I knew that I had to, to change. Some, something had to change. I wasn't happy. Um, I was in, in a bit of a dark place, to be honest. And it was that stage where the opportunity to go on a posting and recruit for the British Army came up and then I went for that. But it was that stage when we were in Cyprus for that short duration. I thought, it's, um, something's up. I can't put my finger on it. Something's wrong. I feel off. Uh, I'm doing things I would normally not do. That's not in my character. And, um, uh, yeah, and that opportunity came up for me to go away. And I went back to the UK with, with the unit. Because that, it was that stage where we finished our time in Cyprus. Because we were classed as a, a light role which means we deploy and move every two years. So the unit went back to the UK. I went with the units and then the opportunity to do recruiting, to be on a posting away from the unit with a smaller unit, different, with different cat badges, different uh, areas and all. So I did that for two years. And I think, I believe that was my saving grace. That definitely helped with uh, mental health. But back then, they were, uh, I didn't reach out. I didn't dare go to um, anyone and ask for, for help. I don't think I knew exactly what was up, but I knew something was off and I, and, and I had to change uh, my direction of what I wanted to be. After that recruiting assignment, then you left the army. Yeah. How did it feel to leave? Um, it felt good. Um, it felt good and it felt like a little bit that I, I let my, my team down because I wasn't there because it was such a big part of me. But I knew that I had to move on. And I said to myself, I'm not going to go back there again. I'm not going to lift up a firearm, another assault rifle. <laughs> but I was so wrong because uh, my best friend came over to me and says, if I'm going to go to this open day, to this exhibition of a company that they they run this clutch protection course. And, um, 
just come with me and because I'm going to go and do the course, get qualified and, and then go into private security. I went with them and within minutes I was sold. I thought, I want to do this. This is purely because I think of they treated everyone like adults. There were no bullshit stuff, you know. There were no, it was like full-on professional, you know. They, they wanted people to, to come up and then if you like, if you do the course and then if you, if you pass and you qualify, then there's the possibility of, become, of getting employment. And then I knew in that stage the money was a big thing. You know, it was probably not the height that it was in 2006, 2003. Right. But it was, it was a very great incentive to go and do it. Plus the fact that, um, yeah, really good gear, good equipment, good, um, good teams. Um, but there were no bullshit factor. You know, they would treat you like an adult. So, so, so much for that sort of um, promise I made to myself after not going ever back. And yeah, so I'd done the course, got qualified, passed it, and then got offered a contract to go and do close protection in uh, Baghdad. So in retrospect, looking back, was it the bureaucracy of just being another tool, another spoke in the wheel in the army, really a major driver of a lot of stress and a lot of dissatisfaction? And it wasn't so much the combat deployments. It wasn't so much the environment. It was just being a number in, in a big bureaucracy. Because yeah. that's what it seems like just hearing it. Yeah. Yeah. It was, it was, for me, it was, it was all the bullshit stuff, you know, and we, we, you know, we went on various deployments, you know, and we were still being treated like kids at times, you know. Um, and I just thought I just had enough, you know, I was, I think in my early thirties being, um, and I just thought this is enough. It's, it's, it's time to move on. And the whole British army was going through some major changes as well. Um, and I just, I wasn't happy with it. And I thought, no, it's, it's time to, to move on, to, to change. And I think it was that stage where the private security um, door opened up for me. I thought, I like the sound of that. I'm going to go for it. Okay. So you've been hugely generous with your time and I don't want, to take advantage of you, but your fault, uh, you've had too interesting a life and I, there's no way I cannot ask some of these questions. So let me, and I'm, unfortunately I'm going to give short shrift to the contracting part of your life, but I want to ask just a couple things, um, in closing about it was contracting. Um, did it scratch an itch that you didn't know you had, or did it, did it kind of close the loop? on what you'd always wanted to get out of a combat arms lifestyle? I would say it opened up. It was a door that I felt it was, it was for me. It was an area that I really enjoyed. Um, I thrived in it. I knew of the risk. We all knew, you know, everyone volunteered. You know, they wanted to go there. And um, yes, the money was a big factor. But the fact that it was, it felt like I was back home again, you know, you with blokes that you probably didn't knew at the time, but you know, you you know, over time it would build up that relationship, you know. Um, but it was an area that I felt comfortable in. I had loads of confidence and I felt it was home. But then it wasn't until uh sometime later that, you know, um I had the phone conversation with my my wife and then she said, oh, it's time to go. It's time to to hang that up. It's we've got a kick now. And that was the, I think the major factor for me to to pause and reflect and to close that door and uh, 
to open up a new door. Um, how hard was it to find interpersonal relationships now at this point, you know, going on that, you know, to meet your wife, to have a kid, did you find just the act of, um, making yourself like a normal person where you have a family and you have a relationship and all that, uh, was that kind of new? Cause it seems like it had been a very Spartan life up until the end of your time in the army where you were really solely focused on, you know, just your skill set. Yeah, it was, it was difficult. It was difficult leaving that environment and just switch off. I couldn't switch off. You know, I was always tense, always um, uh, my alert elements, it went through the roof. Um, I wanted something in people and the company I worked for. I wanted the same that I had in the army. Uh, and I expected the same, but it, it, it was wrong of me to, to think that, you know, I was then working in a civilian environment and I wanted the same. I, I was I was used to a fast paced environment where you train hard and you fight easy, where um it was installed in me and I struggled with that. And then it was the environment of having family, having a kid, something new to me. And um and I had to somehow change or switch off. And that was that was difficult. That was difficult to, to leave that behind and go into an environment where it was laid back. It was different, and and I I had to change. You know, but I expected things around me to to be the same, to change, and I think that was wrong. How much did you have to? Um, how much did it change your mindset to have something to lose? Was that really the first time you'd had something to lose, where you thought, "Hey, this is bigger than me. If anything happens to me," or had you already kind of factored that in? I knew um, within with you know uh, having those other extra responsibilities that it was it, um, there was a lot at stake. You know, it wasn't just me. You know, it, it was back then in the single life. It was easy just to change your direction of travel, do something else. You know, because if something goes down, I can only blame myself. It's only going to affect me. But now it was it was different. You know, we had our first newborn. Uh, we had to get a house, so it was a lot at play, a lot at stake. It wasn't just me. <clears throat> I, I couldn't just be a, a selfish bastard and and go and do things that would suit me. Uh, you know, it, it it was like a ripple effect. Anything that I wanted to go do or have done, it it would have affected not just me but those around me. You know, my wife and, and my kid at the time. You know, uh, and that's what I had to keep in mind. How about your parents? How were how did they adapt to your incessant quest for adventure? How were they coping with all this? Uh geez. Uh I think uh I could do a whole nother interview uh, <laughs> <laughs> with that. Um man, they're, they're, as I said, we're giving this all very short shrift. I feel like it's gonna be very yeah. unsatisfactory, but I feel like I have to at least ask. It's a uh, Oh, the I think this, the amount of stress and drama and worries I put my poor mum through, you know, with um, just deploying and being away and not realizing that I haven't phoned home or mentioned much. And I there's shit loads of stuff I didn't mention to my mom over the years. My deployment in Afghan, Iraq, things that we did, the close calls. I can't dare say that to mention that to her. She'll she'll be on the first plane and she'll be flying to Afghan and she'll, she'll take me back, you know, if, if she knew, right. but that's yeah. Um, a lot of, I think a lot of sort of stress on them, but 
they they knew i think i believe they knew that was my calling the fact that that's what i wanted and then they they knew okay well that's what everyone wants you know we can support that and and, and, and we'll be there for you and, and they still are and, and they're still there in south africa and they still support you all the way from me they've been over in new zealand a number of times you know and um they've made my my family they've seen my three kids my wife you know so they they're a big part of it i would love for them to be a bigger part to actually be living here and spend more time all those things but yeah it's um they've always supported what i wanted and i think my mom always knew and she was a big factor in helping and guiding and getting me out of south africa you know and saying hey how about you go in trouble you know um mm-hmm. i think it was a it was a big thing for her to to eventually let go um yeah but that was a big driving factor as well um yeah we we talked about this on the other show but i, I want to just close with just this and it will be the closing question because I, I can't take up more of your day as much as i really want to um talk just if you can about your relationship with your dad now where you stand peer-to-peer and man-to-man as people that have now both shared uh careers not just mm. jobs but a career in combat and in doing life and death work um how has that bonded you and i know we talked before about you know finally being able to talk to your dad and have conversations that you couldn't have had you know differently can you talk just a little bit about that and what that's meant um and how that's gone i think what i will say is that i believe and i feel and I think it might piss him off if he ever hears this, that when we live together as a family, for me, mentally, emotionally, it felt like the two of us were a thousand miles apart. We were living in the same house, but what I longed for, what I wanted, for, what I've seen in other kids growing up my age, it wasn't there. When I left, I've, been, I've done my travels, I've done my time in, you know, in the army, in in a private security, now that we're literally, literally living thousands, thousands of miles apart, now I feel like we've got that bond. Yeah. Are you? Is it an ongoing conversation with him to kind of unpack your life and his and find more common ground, or is it just unstated and acknowledged? Um, I think we both. We, we know, we understand. I think I, I always wanted more. I always wanted him to be uh, to open up. But now, after my time, I think I understand why at times that he doesn't open up. Um, and and, and he, he knows, we understand that it, it bothers me. And then he, he tries. But then again, it was in his absence that my mother took over and, and she assisted and she helped. Um, yeah, but it's it's at this stage. I think it's uh, the fact that we've walked the same path apart, if you know what I mean. Uh, we we understand. I understand now more than ever. But um, I think I'm more vocal um, with my background because I feel like I have to because it's uh, I'm leaving something behind for my kids. And, and with my writing, it comes into play where I'm, I'm putting it on paper. I want to put it in, in a book. So one day, my son and my two daughters can pick it up and say, oh, that's my dad. That's, that's, 
the thoughts, the feelings, the expressions, everything that's on paper. This is the photos. Um, this is the medals um, for them. So it's, it's for them to to know this is, you know, uh, it's, it's, that's their dad. Um, yeah, so, so, so that, that's, that's the, um, that's what I want to do. I saw on your Instagram uh, that you just had a, uh, you just had Rudyard Kipling's if on there. Yeah. Speaking of, yeah. yeah, telling your kids and leaving your kids a legacy. Now, if this is a, uh, this is incredible, man. And I, I can't thank you enough for coming on. I, um, at some point down the road, I'll, I'll try to entrap you into doing another episode to dive into all the stuff we didn't even have time for, but thank you for your generosity and opening up. And I, I, um, it meant a lot and it, it meant a lot to me to hear. And, um, dude, I can't wait to talk again down the road. Thank you. That was Neville Johnson's profile in havoc. Um, check the show notes for links to follow Nev, see what he's up to now. Um, he posts a lot of writing and usually with a bunch of really interesting pictures from his past, uh, whether it was Sangin or whether it was from South Africa. Um, I still remember the picture he posted on Instagram of his, um, I don't know if it was his dad exactly, but it was, you know, South African police officers or soldiers in Ovambaland in South Africa or in Namibia, wherever that was. I'm not entirely sure. Um, but in that area. And uh, anyway, I just find that stuff super interesting. I think anybody interested in military history would find that interesting. So check out his uh, Instagram and he is always an interesting follow. I'm very grateful and I want to take a minute to thank Second Mission Foundation for their sponsorship of this episode, as well as our other sponsor, the Veterans Repertory Theater. Veterans Repertory Theater exists to produce veteran playwrights and celebrate veterans in the arts. It is a creative hub for talented veterans and world-class performers to create compelling live theater and events. And of course, full disclosure, this is my nonprofit. It, Vet Rep produces the Savage Wonder podcast, the Savage Wonder literary blog, the Write Loud events on Instagram Live. A lot of lines of effort going on with Vet Rep, not the least of which is the new first annual Savage Wonder Festival in beautiful Chester, New York, in upstate New York, on Memorial Day weekend, specifically Sunday, May 29th, there will be music, there will be dance, there will be poetry, there will be, what else, what am I forgetting? Theater, my God, theater, of course, um, a whole list of artistic endeavors by veterans that are professional in those artistic fields. You do not want to miss this festival. It is pay what you can, so come. There is no very few barriers to entry to come and enjoy all these amazing veterans and what they are doing artistically. You can find out more about that at savagewonder.com. That is the festival website, savagewonder.com. Pretty easy to remember. Or I believe the website should be up. It's not up right now when I'm recording this, but by the time you guys are hearing this, the website should be up. If it isn't, go to vetrep.org, V-E-T-R-E-P.org, which is the website of the Veterans Repertory Theater, vetrep.org, and go to the Now Playing tab, and you will see all the lines of effort with VetRep, including the Savage Wonder Festival. Um, if the website is up, there'll be links to it there. If the website isn't up, there'll be information or whatever we can officially say at that point in time. 
um, that will be in the Now Playing tab. So two websites for you to remember, savagewonder.com and vetrep.org. Again, that's V-E-T-R-E-P.org. And I thank VetRep for their co-sponsorship of this episode. Check the show notes for everything else that you want to know. Uh, there will be an accompanying article to this episode that I put out on Havoc Journal. So check that out. And if you're listening to us on iTunes, thank you for giving us a five-star review. And with any feedback that you want, attach it, you say whatever you want to us, questions, comments, snide remarks. If you could attach it, though, to a five-star review, that would mean an awful lot. As always, thanks to our producer, Michael Neal. I'm Christopher Paul Meyer. My thanks again to Neville Johnson. And we'll see you next time for another Profile in Havoc. 